Hi everybody, I am Jen Johnson and you are watching Thought by Thought Healing where I get on here and talk about everything related to chronic pain and chronic symptoms. I do this because I have my own pain journey and when I discovered the mind-body connection on and all the pain neuroscience that came with understanding chronic pain and chronic symptoms, I was able to reverse my pain along with a lot of other people. So if that's you, if you have a story similar to mine, you are in the right place. I come at this from a Christian perspective, so if that's important to you, then you should definitely subscribe. On this channel, I interview experts in the field, and today I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Melissa Farmer. So I'm going to read a short little bio about her, and then we'll get on with the interview. Dr. Melissa Farmer is one of five people in the U.S. who is both a pain psychologist and neuroscientist. With 16 years of experience working with people who live with hard-to-treat chronic pain, Dr. Farmer was trained at one of the few multidisciplinary pain clinics in North America at McGill University, where she treated patients with a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, stress reduction, and meditation techniques for pain relief. Dr. Farmer excels in empathic conversations that incorporate the patient perspective and in layperson-friendly discussions of the neuroscience of chronic pain. She worked alongside Dr. Abkarian for eight years and can deftly discuss the same body of work. Together, they have founded Avo Health based in Chicago and Finland. All right, you guys. And with that, I'm going to introduce you to her and we'll get going. Thanks for being here. Bye. Hi, everybody. I'm Jen Johnson. This is Thought by Thought Healing, and I have the incredible honor of interviewing Dr. Melissa Farmer today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Melissa and I just had a great conversation prior to starting, and um, I'm just really looking forward to this. Do you prefer to go by Dr. Farmer, or what's your Melissa. Melissa. Okay. We're all equals. <laughs> all right, great. Well, I definitely go by Jen, so that works. All right, um, let's just have you start by telling us just a little bit about yourself, your journey. Um, I, I'm sure I'll have a lot of questions in here, but just start wherever feels comfortable for you. Sure. Um, my, my journey began in science, honestly, and specifically uh, in women's female sexual dysfunction a long, long time ago. And uh, I, after learning about different female sexual dysfunctions, I decided to go to graduate school and learn specifically about pelvic pain, which mm. was of a lot of interest to me. And it's so common in women. Yes. Um, and what I did was I, I was able to uh, get training, clinical training at the Allen Edwards uh, Pain Institute, uh, which is uh, founded by Ronald Melzack. So it's the first North American pain uh, institute that had a multidisciplinary approach. Mm. And I was surrounded by these people who were so inspiring because they were working together for patients who had had pain for years. And so I got to see them reason in these really interesting ways based on mechanisms. Um, but also I got to sit and learn the stories of people with so many different types of pain. And I became fascinated with all the weird stuff, all the strange stuff. And, and because I was in this really unique environment, I learned that there's always a reason there's always a rationale there's a scientific rationale and there's scientific rationales for all the weird symptoms that a lot of doctors don't quite understand so yeah. if you get deep enough into the pain science 
there are old literatures, weird studies that explain a lot of weird symptoms. Um, but also what I understood over that period of time was the power of the brain. Uh, because, you know, with every person who came in with these, these stories, um, it was very clear that pain, it wasn't just the pain they were coming in with, it was life around the pain. Yeah. The life, you know, whenever you reorganize your whole life, your identity around pain, you aren't just treating a sensory body part, you're treating a whole person. Yeah. And so that really triggered my, my interest in how the brain uh, reshapes the experience of life whenever someone is suffering with pain for a long period of time. So I went to do, uh, I went on to do a postdoctoral fellowship and work with uh, Vanya Apkarian at Northwestern University. Which is amazing. Yeah, and, and if people aren't familiar with him, he, his work now, I realize his work uh, validated a lot of the work of Sarno and that mm. Sarno's hypotheses were proven <laughs> in a sense by Vanya's work in very high profile journals. So although Vanya didn't, wasn't aware of this and we weren't aware of it because I was, you know, in academia world, very, you oh. know, blinders. Um, I saw firsthand whenever you do very proper neuroimaging studies, you can see objectively how the brain shifts from a sensory organizational state to an emotional state whenever yeah, people yeah. have chronic pain. And so the evidence absolutely exists um and the you know the challenge was then how to apply it and about that time i developed chronic pain myself uh, first it was lower back pain and then pelvic pain and did you and you developed lower back pain and, and pelvic pain after you started studying pain so bef yes. before you had been studying pelvic pain and you didn't have it and yes then you did. yeah wow yeah, so no, no one, I didn't tell anyone about this. So no one, none of my colleagues published with new. Um, it was something that, so I, I went through the patient journey where it was, it was mind blowing to me, the huge chasm between the science that existed and what type of treatment I received from doctors, like uh -huh. even great doctors, yep. maybe not the best doctors, but you know, really good doctors. Um, and loving you know, doctors too. Yeah. Yes. The, the scans showed nothing. Uh, I tried PT. I tried some medication. All the stuff that I tried didn't do much. Yeah. And there was a moment, and I actually remember this moment where I was at home and it was one of those mornings where I was trying to get out of bed like trying to will myself out of bed and you know there's that whole dance where you're trying to figure out how to get up with <laughs> the minimum amount of pain yeah and and I it hit me that if the research we were doing was true the pain I was feeling is not in my body yeah it's an emotion it's in my brain and it's being like there's a the, the sensations I'm feeling are emotional yeah, and the yeah. emotions are sensory. And it just, like I'd been doing this research for five years at that point and it never really hit me until I felt it in my own body. Yeah. And it took a while to digest because it's such a huge mental shift. Yeah. 
Um, and that's one of the reasons why I have so much compassion for people who are on this journey, who've gone through the medical system and are often gaslit. And if you're lucky enough to find a really loving doctor or pain coach or psychologist or psychiatrist, like count yourself lucky because it's so difficult to find them. But even then, what, like the, the operating knowledge of, of many doctors doesn't touch on the actual science that exists. Yeah. Which you found out yourself through your own pain journey as well. Absolutely. And, and how interesting for you to be in the middle of doing all this research and having it at your fingertips. Um, and yet you still have the compassion for all of us who are, have didn't, didn't have that. But at, this, at the same point, when we do discover that science, it is just such a breath of fresh air to realize I am not crazy. This is, my pain is real. This is absolutely something I am experiencing and it deserves the validation, which you're not getting when you go to, you know, all these doctors and therapists and specialists that they don't know any better. Um, but and you're still not being served. Yeah. And something, you know, from the pain scientist perspective, the whole body from, from the nerves in your skin to the spinal cord, to the brain are built to amplify pain. So it's a natural thing, the amplification of pain, because your body knows that it's a message that it needs to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. But in that process, as you're sort of adapting to this, this pain signal, I, I, I would love to get the message across. There is nothing that, go, that happens in the body that is wrong. Mm. There isn't anything that you've done wrong. There isn't anything you've done that is responsible for it, that requires punishment or self-blame self or self-judgment. In fact, the body is doing everything it's supposed to do by making sure that you learn this really important event as effectively as possible. And that's where emotional learning comes in. The brain is naturally designed designed to, um, to, whenever there's a sensory event that's linked with a strong emotion, like, like pain is, the aversion, your brain naturally amplifies those memories because it's important. Mm -hmm. And as pain continues day after day, week after week, month after month, that strengthens that memory. So what we're then talking about is an emotional pain memory. Yeah. And, you know, this does have the capacity to change the brain, to change how the brain functions and even change the anatomy. But something that I think it's really important for everyone to, to hear is that neuroplasticity works both ways. It can yeah. create the pain and it can take it away. Yeah. Through emotional learning. So whenever you look at chronic pain as an emotional learning state, there are rules that you can use to, to disentangle this, this emotional memory. And it's important to be honest about all the tendrils. So in the, in the brain, emotional memories are maintained like a spider web, meaning okay. it's not just the pain itself, it's how the pain impacts your movement, your uh, decisions, your, how you hold your body, 
uh, the emotions that come up, the decisions to not spend time with friends, yeah. but even deeper than that, those core beliefs that we've held since we were children yeah. about our worthiness or what, what it means whenever something bad happens to us. Yeah. Like these very uh, primitive childhood interpretations of the world that we repeat all of our lives. And so one of the things about, about pain is that it isn't just dealing with the sensation. It isn't even just dealing with your, you know, your life events and how you deal with the pain right then you often have to go really deep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think getting to those, those core beliefs you're talking about, which are sometimes so like, I don't remember the word you use, but so simple. I'm, I'm not valuable. I'm not lovable. You probably deserve to be treated that way. You know, those simple um, statements when we can like simmer it down to that, sometimes it can be really helpful um, in unlearning some of those amplified responses. And the reason why they're simple is because those beliefs are encoded at the level of understanding whenever you got them. So mm -hmm. think about yourself, how you, you thought whenever you were three years old mm -hmm. or younger those original memories are encoded with the mentality of a child, which is why they're so simple and so powerful. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I just, I remember thinking and believing, and I don't know who taught me this, but that if you can't remember it, it doesn't matter. And it, it didn't, you know, it didn't affect you. And, and I think that was a common belief as, as I was growing up that as long as your child couldn't remember something, then then it wouldn't have an effect on them. And in reality, it is shaping, it is shaping your neural circuits, it's shaping your brain. It's it's setting you up for the life that you're gonna have. Absolutely. But even those patterns can be healed. Yes. None of this is none of this is hardwired. So yeah. the, so something that that is uh, useful might be useful right now to bring up is, you know, so if we think about these emotional memories as webs where it has all these tendrils in different parts of the brain and different ages, you know, whenever these things were reinforced so traumas as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Whenever, every time you bring that memory up. So this is, this is the concept of memory reconsolidation. Mm -hmm. Every time you bring that memory up into your consciousness, you are reactivating that original memory uh, it's called a memory trace, but it's sort of like a memory web. You're reactivating it. And whenever you reactivate it, you create a four hour window of time. Whenever that memory itself is labeled to change, you can change it. So mm -hmm. the question becomes, what are you going to change it? How are you going to change it? And so in a sense, you have these these uh, critical windows of time when you can rewrite the actual memory. Um, and one of the most effective ways that I feel that, uh, uh, that we can do that uh, is by adding compassion yeah. and deep breathing to reduce the sympathetic load of the memory. So yeah. even if you do it, even if it's, even whenever the memory comes up, if you just deep breathe, even if you're just doing that, because your nervous system ends up more relaxed than you began, that memory is then hardwired as a less stressful, less traumatic memory. Yeah. You can do that a lot of times. So in psychotherapy, that's called 
systematic desensitization or habituation, or you can do it in big whopping sessions, which is similar to, to exposure therapy or flooding. Uh -huh. But as long as you plan to end up and make sure that you end up more relaxed than you began, you're actually changing the structure of those memories. I, the first time I heard about this, I mean, was years ago. And I, and I remember thinking, what, we're going to go back to the past and create a lie instead of what actually happened. And, and I really got stuck with that. I just felt like this can't be right. I'm, I'm, I'm creating something that wasn't actually there. And, and the more that I've looked at this and now and it partly healed because of this, I understand that there are like you're talking about the compassion and even like sometimes and, and maybe we should talk about if you believe we have to actually revisit the, the trauma itself, but revisiting the emotions and, and maybe some scenarios that feel safer and introducing that love and that compassion. And for me, introducing the truth and maybe um, maybe in that moment I felt um, unvaluable and I felt um, helpless or hopeless or stupid or something and and being able to revisit that and remember maybe introduce the fact that um, it, the, the activity of the perpetrator was uh, reflects solely on them and not on me and and having love or realizing God is with me in this moment um, just things like that that can actually change how I viscerally respond today to what happened then and kind of change that that truth quote unquote or that that core belief that i've carried with me so long and now i can let some of that go is that yeah that's an example a, of what you're talking about yeah that and that's a great point so in different so in some some people call this soul rescue whenever they go mm -hmm. back in time to the memory uh i know that howard schubner has a meditation where he calls it time traveler yeah where you go back and you are the parent of yourself in that, you know, it's, it's an interesting question about what is the truth. Um, you know, the intention is not to lie or to make up some stories, but to understand that the perspective that we had whenever we were in the past, whenever we were in the process of being traumatized or re-traumatized or just felt alone, looking at the truth of that and, you know, because I, I work with all, all sorts of different people with different spiritual beliefs, the, the, the rescuer can be God, the rescuer can be yourself now, mm -hmm. because yeah. you have the knowledge and compassion, and you can see clearly that at that age, you didn't deserve that. No mm -hmm. one deserves that. You deserved love. You deserve to be held and supported. And, um, it, you know, so that's the truth whether that and you know you can make various arguments about where the truth is coming from even whenever you know you're whether you're rescuing yourself or god is rescuing you it, it's technically the same thing mm -hmm. um but uh i i think that it is creates a really challenging raw experience where you're vulnerable and creating space for that vulnerability is really important. So one of the things that I notice, different people are at different stages of readiness to face, which is why I love, um, for instance, your body will never 
overwhelm whenever these memories come back there's no need to pressure yourself to remember every single thing your body will bring up it's it's very intelligent it'll bring up just enough like right at the cusp of your capacity at this now moment of what you can process yeah and no more yeah and so then what you're faced with is you know some deep stuff is going to come up and there are sort of there are certain ways to one of the techniques that I, I learned that helped me in my healing was sort of a dual consciousness where I feel the memory come up in myself and I feel the truth of how it felt. And concurrently, I imagine with my now self looking down at that memory, experiencing it at the same time, but just shining love and compassion on it. Yeah. And whenever you do both of those things and you breathe really deep and slow, there'll be really overwhelming emotions that come up, really intense sensations that come up. But as long as you just keep on breathing slow and deep, those emotions will subside. Right. Emotions always subside. That's the universal truth. They always come and they go. Yeah. So it'll, it'll feel really uncomfortable in the moment. But emotions they don't always need stories. They don't always need uh, to be solved. Sometimes they just need to be felt. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I resonate with that, um, that, I don't know, looking at what is happening. And I, I do that in my current life when I'm going through something tough. Sometimes I'll, I'll just step back a little bit and look at what I'm going through. Um, because I think it's so often easy, easy or easier to not see the emotions that um, are valid for us to feel in those in those times. And when I can step back and look at, oh, wow, that was I am I am going through something tough. Then I then I there's a there's a bit of compassion here that I introduce for what I'm going through. And it it softens me to to what's happening around me. Um, and because I'm a Christian, God is a big part of that and God is compassion. So there's just this big, you know, just, I don't know, feeling loved and cared for, um, which also I think of something, I'm going to tangent here a little bit, but I think something that, that I've noticed is a pattern um, with chronic pain for myself and for some of my clients is needing validation from other people for what you're going through. And when you can step back, invite God into the picture, and also see it clearly for what it is yourself, there becomes less of this need for somebody else to validate, um, because there's there is enough love and compassion here that I'm I'm okay, I'm safe in this space. Does that make sense? That's it makes perfect sense, and it's a level of mastery where. Yeah. You know, if you think about all the work that it took to get to that point. Yeah. Um, months and months and months and months. But it's something that can be done. It's it's a practicable state of mind, state of being. Yeah. That, yeah. That, yes, absolutely. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Okay. We've gone on like three different tangents here, which I love. Um, okay. So, so you, we've covered your neuroscience kind of briefly covered that 
that part of your life and then something transitioned you because you're not practicing anymore right you're you've moved on to new adventures is that true yes oh that yes well so the the story is sort of bittersweet um it, i was very unhappy in academia and okay. the pain was part of that yeah i wondered okay thanks for being honest about that yeah absolutely um it was it was something that uh i my ego is very 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 closely tied to the idea that this is who I am. I've been trained for this. I have all this work that I put into it and it was making me miserable. And so it's, uh, this is, and I, I noticed this in, uh, people that I, I work with as well. Sometimes pain comes up whenever the patterns that we're choosing are creating misery and it's, yeah. you know, your body pulling on your arm, like pay attention to me. This isn't, this isn't where you should be. This isn't right for you, but our, our minds just, you know, try to gaslight the body. We're like, no, 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 no. This is okay. This is, so we push ourselves and push ourselves and push ourselves way past our limits. And so it got to the point where I just, I could not, I knew that I would be miserable if I continued in academia. It just was not for me. I could do it, but um, I, it, it, it was not for me. And one of the things that really affected me the most was that the work I was doing wasn't getting to the people who needed it. Yeah. It was barely being read by other research scientists and doctors. Cause it was kind of hard to understand. Yes. Yeah. And, and I was thinking like, I have all this knowledge and it's not getting to, in a in a real palpable way to anyone who needs it, um, and that was one of the reasons why uh, me and a chronic pain patient and Dr. Apkarian uh, came together and we started a company called Avo, and um, our idea was essentially that the knowledge that existed that. Uh oh, I just lost your audio. <laughs> Why don't you do what we did before and you back out? We'll see if the recording will continue. This will be interesting. Ooh, it is. Okay, well, now you guys just have me. <laughs> we um, started this recording. Or no, we started chatting before the recording started and the same thing happened. Her audio just went out in the middle, but here she is. She's back again. And we are still recording. Okay. There you are without video. Okay. Perfect. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. So there'll be a little bit of editing, hopefully not that much. <laughs> yeah. Or else it's a piece of interest. Maybe we'll leave yes. it. We'll <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so, so we were we were seeing just that there's this big chasm between the knowledge that existed and then what was actually available to people with pain. Yeah. And and to be absolutely realistic, whenever something happens in pain research, it takes ten to fifteen years minimum to affect anyone's life realistically, and that's only after you convince the doctors. Then the doctors, you know, shape the guidelines, and it changes how practice um, is done. 
So it was like, we know this, that we have this information right now. How can we actually get it to people? And so that's how the AVO app was born. So what the AVO app is, is a sort of an embodied mindfulness CBT-like program that's constantly evolving. It has excellent quality pain neuroscience education, but also um, the thing that makes it interesting is, you know, whenever you go to, whenever you go into the mind-body world and you see, you're sort of faced with all of these options of what could impact your pain and, and what directions you could go, it's bewildering to know which combination of things will affect you. Yeah. And so what we wanted to do was create some sort of selection algorithm based on Dr. Upkarian's research, based on the types of the ways that pain unfolds in you. We create hypotheses in the first week. And after the first week, we start a series of what we call tracks, which give you a personalized set of practices that each lasts like three to five days. So they're very short, very focused. And it's like, we have a hypothesis of what will work for you. Let's start on this first, then this, then this. And after each track, we see whether the pain changes. If the pain improves, we increase the value of that track and increase likelihood it'll come back in the future. That kind of track. If it has no effect, or if your pain gets worse, we downgrade it. So it's sort of dynamically adapting to what each person needs. Um, Because that's one of the things that has been so staggeringly clear. Every single person's pain journey is unique. And so you really need either a a fantastic coach um, (laughs) to guide you through through these, you know, through this trajectory or some sort of, some sort of help. So that's, that's our goal. Yeah. And that's so true. I, I, I feel like each client that I have, what our sessions look like are completely different. And, Mm -hmm. and that is because, well, we're looking at the brain, we're looking how your brain is wired. We're looking at your history or your childhood, your adult life, your stressors, academia, whatever it is you're, you're dealing with. And there's just so many, so many different parts of it. So that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. And, and when did you launch that? Um, we launched our most recent version of it in September, actually. Okay. Pretty recent. Uh, so uh, if uh, people go to the www.avohealth.com website, uh, and actually, it's actually, we're starting a research study, which essentially gives people access for free for three months. So if any listeners are interested in that, you can go to www.avohealth.com backslash campaign backslash research dash study. And you can get access for three months free, try it out um, and, and get a taste for it yourself and to see if it's, if it fits your needs. Yeah. And we can put that in the show notes too. That's cool. Yeah. I, yeah. Before we started this video, Melissa and I were just, um, just really connecting on how much we care about this science getting out there for people like you listening or watching, um, because there's just so many people in chronic pain and, and I don't know that 10 to 15 years to get it into the medical system 
um, that's hopeful for me <laughs> because I, I think that does mean it'll eventually, it eventually will be more mainstream medicine. I, I, I hope. Yeah. Um, but I think what it, one of the things that we've noticed is that if, if you already understand that there's a mind body relationship, whenever it comes to chronic pain, you're ahead of the curve. Yeah. There are lots of people who are not there yet, who are still completely dependent on the medical system. And I, I just based on my observations of, of, of people with pain, it's a, it's traumatic. Uh, uh -huh. for years and years and years, going to different people, having your hope increase and then dashed away, trying different medications that, that, you know, and, and my, my attitude about medications, whenever you don't have anything that helps, I totally understand the value of something that not, you know, kicks the pain down like one or two just points, a yeah, just yeah. a little bit. And that's, but at the same time, I think that there's a greater uh, potential for full healing over the long term, but it takes a really active engagement with yourself. It, it's a journey. Yes, it is a journey. We were also talking about that because Melissa and I both have healing journeys and it was not overnight um, by any means. It's definitely a commitment. So if you could see like, if you could see, let's just say two changes, one in the medical world, from the professional end of the medical world and one like an option or a, something that was available to the client um what would you like to see i would love to see doctors having more time to actually connect with mm -hmm. patients. um and and to have tools that allow them to really closely monitor and understand the journey the, the peaks and the flows, because pain isn't just like one number. It changes every day. It changes all the time. And I, I would love to see there be time and space made for first a, an empathic human connection to be made is like just standard part of, of a, of a, of a medical visit. Um, but also an, some opportunity for, um, for the journey to be tracked together. Uh, and so that's, that's one thing. And I know that there's some excellent doctors out there who do make a priority to, to make that happen. Uh, so I, you know, may all doctors have, <laughs> have the, the wisdom to create space for their, their patients. Um, yeah. And from the, from the, patient side, I'd love to see more resources about how to, how, how to process emotions. Mm. That's one of the things that I've noticed, especially recently, that is, it gets in the way of the healing journey because people, whenever they're 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old, the idea of unpacking emotions from the past is frightening because they they're used to pushing it down or pressing it down, working through it, working past it, burning out. And the idea that re-experiencing or, or revisiting some of those emotions as part of their healing journey 
whenever they don't have the tools to process emotions and to experience and release emotions, it's just that inspires fear and it, it's an obstacle and it doesn't have to be an obstacle. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, from, if, if you're listening to this, look, and, and this, this resonates with you, you feel like, oh, yes, I, I, I'm not sure I really want to dig deep into my past. Um, look into emotional regulation and emotional release mechanisms, look into tapping. There are lots of ways that you can move through really heavy emotions really efficiently. So it is possible. It is a learnable skill you know, find a expert coach like, like Jen, or, um, or, or find some resources that help guide you through the process, because that'll be, especially with chronic pain, that will be the silver bullet, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't, I mean, I, I do think, um, like, like you just used the word, traumatic when you were talking about the journey of seeing so many doctors and and specialists and that whole thing it it is it is traumatic <laughs> um because it's scary right and even working through the emotions that came with with all of that which if you're anything like me <laughs> the the hunt for the diagnosis amplified the symptoms in and of itself. And so in that same way, working through the emotions of that is is a beginning step. And, and sometimes that feels a little safer to work through those emotions, but also we learn through the first time we process emotions like, oh, okay, I did that one. I can do another one, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I just realized before we lost your audio, um, you said something, um, you said just, and I just want to revisit this because I think it was notable, the patterns that we are choosing. And I don't know why I want to revisit that, but I just think that so often it's the literal choices we're making that we think we want. Um, but, but we don't. <laughs> I remember at one point in time, I, I was having this turmoil over something and I thought, I'm going to give myself one second to answer this question. Do you want to? And I gave myself the question. And, and when I actually like answered it immediately, it was so clear. I did not want to be doing the thing that I was doing. Um, and so anyways, just something, just food for thought to think about what are some of the patterns in your life? Yeah, yeah it's such a, and it's a, it's a scary thing to think about because what your mind wants and what what we think rationally we want mm. um maybe making us sick <laughs> yes and so it, it, the, you know so there's stages to that there's the there's the you know if if you're at a, a point where that kind of you know you hear like a little ping whenever you hear that um there are different degrees of working through that for example first asking yourself what would be necessary for me to be happy and feel supported if i continue doing this mm. so then you go through okay here are the conditions and are those realistic conditions can you do mm. them can you can and then once you try them out does it make a difference if it doesn't then that's a really good indication or if you've 
you're, you've been in therapy for years and you still are miserable in something, those are good indications that uh, some of the choices that the brain has made are not, and, and that's one of the interesting quirky paradoxes here. We're both talking about the brain hurting and helping. Yeah. So um, it's, but one thing I've noticed across a lot of different patients that I've, I've uh, gotten to know is that whenever the body wants us to stop doing what we think is good for us, what we think will make us successful, what we think will make us well-known or have a great reputation, the body knows that pain is the thing we listen to the most. So pain is a really effective way for our body to talk to us because it grabs our attention and it makes us stop. It's one of the few things that makes us stop. So in a sense, you're also looking at your body has gotten so used to you not listening to it that the only way it can grab your attention is through, you know, life-changing pain. Yeah, and what the pain down. is often tell yeah, and what the pain is often telling you is slow down, rest. Yep. This whatever you're doing right now is hurting you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh it's very it's very. I, I love it and I hate it. I know, I know. Yeah. It's really but, the, but, but there's also, again, the, whenever we often feel like we're forced, like we only have limited choices. And whenever we open up to the idea that maybe what we're doing right now isn't the best, and I'm going through this, right? Like we're all going through this in different oh, ways, wow. in different parts of our lives. Whenever you get to that realization, there's a sometimes frightening, but exhilarating freedom in considering what else you could be doing. Uh-huh. And that's where if you lean into that, lean into, it might feel weird at first because it's unknown, but just exploring the possibilities of what else you could be doing. And then whenever you do that, whenever you allow yourself to even have the audacity to consider doing something different, then you'll start to feel something in your heart that's like excitement. Yeah. Like building Avo. Yes. Yes. And then yes. You just follow that excitement. Yeah. And, and breadcrumbs you don't have to make huge changes just small changes forward. and the cool thing about that is that i and that is that it's also part of neuroplasticity and it's part of healing it's like here you go on this new pathway and you're making all these you're making all these brain changes and that literally helps <laughs> with changing your pain absolutely and one of the easiest things to do um, one thing I often talk uh, to patients about is the brain has two reward systems. Um, one is <clears throat> the reward of neutrality, which is pain relief, which we all know very well. Yeah. The other reward system is uh, movement, dopamine-related, <clears throat> external-focused rewards. So mm. that's you approaching something in the environment that makes you feel good. That's you seeking pleasure. Yeah. So whenever we're on this neuroplasticity driven, you know, journey toward healing, not only it's important to focus on the relief, yes, but also building those positive emotional experiences 
that's part of reshaping your brain structure and function. Yeah. And most of us who have been in chronic pain have started to isolate ourselves and we're not we'll just call them the dopamine hits. We're, we're definitely not getting the dopamine hits, right? Because we're just staying home and staying quote unquote safe. Um, and and that, that, that part of our brain or that neurotransmitter or that release does need uh, is part of is part of what's the word I'm looking for um, a balance a, a healthy balance in our lives. We don't want too much of it. I mean, that's a whole different category, right? Um, but saying yes to going out and and being with people and doing something fun and laughing and and all those go bungee jumping i don't know <laughs> something even really sitting helpful. in the sun and enjoying the feeling of sun like it it it's mm. anything novel so here's here's something if you if if um here's a also an, another interesting way of looking at it whenever uh you look at the brain and you're looking for what gives us the biggest dopamine hit, uh, which means essentially what we're paying attention to the most. It's often the period right before we're gonna do something that's the most rewarding, that we have the biggest dopamine uh, release in our brain. Yeah. So for example, let's say you're planning a vacation. Technically from your brain's perspective, the few days before you leave for the vacation are it that's it that's the that's the most rewarding part so you don't even have to go somewhere you just have to plan something and feel that anticipation build up so in a sense making the decision Mm. and feeling into it and 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 experiencing that anticipation is already rewarding you don't even have to do anything yet that's so interesting yeah Yeah. so you know yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that could be, so in, in that sense, it also takes some of the pressure off of going and doing something. Um, uh, but, but literally, if you, if you think more about novelty mm-hmm. rather than even small novel uh, decisions, sitting in the room in a different position, walking to work, driving a new way to work, Whenever I was, um, for instance, during the pandemic, um, uh, whenever we were all in lockdown, I uh, was taking cold showers. I was sitting in different parts of the room. I was looking for any possible way to make my daily experience new or different. Yeah. And that's, it's dopamine bursts are that simple. Yeah. Yep. Um, I... I when I was healing, I decided to write a list of 10 things that I didn't like to do and decide that I liked doing them and started to look forward to doing them and use that neuroplasticity to literally, I, and I did it effectively. I literally changed 10 things. No, I'm remembering this wrong. I, 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 I wrote down 10 and I picked three to do. I ended up doing almost all of them, but there were things like mornings and listening to podcasts, which is really funny because now I have a podcast, but I didn't like to listen to podcasts and just picked some things to start literally looking forward to. And, and I think that's, I think it was effective because of the dopamine. And I didn't realize this until now, but I, I, I set myself 
up for them to be fun. So like I bought a new mug um, for coffee in the morning and got nice coffee and, and made my mornings really special so that I actually liked them. And, um, and now I, I literally love mornings now. And I think it's, I think it's from that. Life yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Your eyes just got big, like, uh, no, thanks. <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, and the other element is whenever you're in the new situation, stopping for a moment and just being very aware of the new situation. Yeah. So the, if you're, if you're looking for the ingredients for something that's rewarding anticipation, and then whenever you're in it, just being aware of the newness. Yeah. Being present. Yeah. Love it. Okay. So we're, if, if it's all right with you, we'll switch gears. I have just two questions from, um, watchers that they have for you. Okay. So, um, let's see, could you, okay. Could you please ask Melissa Farmer if she has any answers for someone with severe RSI thumb pain symptoms and bad tendonitis up the arms that feels like it's spreading starting with thumb pain on the right side spread into the left and into the wrists and the forearms up into the right elbow like a golfer's elbow. I have other pains too that seem like TMS, but this is my main concern right now and the most debilitating. So whenever I hear a question like this, first, uh, the person has said that they already have some TMS symptoms. So one hypothesis is that this is part of the TMS. Other hypothesis is that this is something new. So let's, let's go through both ideas just to be thorough. So if this is something new, if this is a, and I'm going to use some kind of some more technical language here. If this is a new peripheral injury in the nerves in your arms, um, there are some experiments you can do because I know that even there's always, you know, it's normal to have a little bit of doubt, even 5%, 10% doubt, like maybe this is something new, maybe this is an injury. So let's, let's see. Uh, So one, so whenever I guide people through uh, this, I first suggest they get some lidocaine, put it over the area that feels pain. What lidocaine does is it silences the receptors at the very end of the nerve. So it prevents the nerves from transmitting anything, any sensory signal. So you put lidocaine on and if it changes something, if it changes the the pain, then maybe there's a little bit of of a peripheral signal there. If it has no impact on the pain, then that means that there is no new sensory input that is contributing to that pain. Okay, so on another day, not the same day, one of the favorite, uh, um, it's called Ted's pain cream. It was created by Ted Price and I went to graduate school with him. It's a cream that you can get online uh, and its mechanism of action is very specific for a very specific type of pain. It blocks the two molecular pathways that are responsible for inflammation that drives the peripheral sensitization of nociceptors to the spinal cord. In English, that (laughs) means that it blocks the inflammation that leads to pathological pain. 
Okay. So it's, so it's, it won't affect normal sensation. You could put it on and you could, you know, pick up a, a pin and feel everything normally. It only impacts, um, quote unquote, uh, harmful inflammation. So you put that cream on the arm. If something happens, uh, if you notice a reduction in the intensity of the pain, then that means that you're dealing with some type of inflammation that's being blocked by the cream. Uh, in that case, I would suggest you then take some turmeric and pepper because it's as effective, if not more effective than any uh, you know, over-the-counter or prescription pain reliever. So you reduce the inflammation. Now, if it doesn't change whenever you have Ted's pain cream on, then that's a really good indicator that you've ruled out acute pain and inflammatory pain. And because, so the next part of the link would be spinal amplified pain. Spinal amplified pain, which is sometimes called central sensitization, needs peripheral input. So if Ted's pain cream didn't work on it, then you don't have anything that's being pathologically amplified in the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. So you've ruled out three mechanisms. You've ruled out acute pain, you've ruled out inflammatory pain, and you've ruled out uh, spinally maintained central sensitization, which leaves the brain. Yeah. So, so I encourage you to do this experiment to, to show for yourself, you know, to, to experience it yourself. Um, yeah. what, whether these things, uh, change the, the sensation of the pain, if they don't change the sensation of the pain, then it suggests that this is part of the TMS pattern. And what I would suggest is thinking about, we were just talking about resistance. Um, sometimes uh, you then look to what sort of emotional memories might be held in your arms it, for, for better, you know, for, that's sort of a literal metaphor there. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if there's something that you're doing repetitively with your arms that is not aligned or you have some sort of conflict with, that would be a great reason why your arms would start developing pain. Yeah. Um, it could be historical. It could be related to, uh, so like in this sort of situation, it's, I often suggest uh, Stephen Levine's guided meditations because they're really good with embodiment and getting you in touch with emotions, embodied emotions and embodied memories. Um, so in a sense, your task is then to explore what kind of emotional memories are yeah. literally being kept in your arms. Yeah. And that absolutely resonates true for me and probably for a lot of watchers. I know that um, a lot of my pain was carried um, in my feet um, because of interactions that I was having with people while I was I was a, a low level competitive dancer, but I had some um, some relational problems there that ended up in my feet because that's what I was using all the time during that um, emotional mm -hmm. micro trauma. I'll call it. Um, so I think that's kind of what you're talking about is what what emotional memories are being potentially carried out in your in that specific body part absolutely yeah
I've not had anybody talk about how to rule out, right? Like the ruling out something being structural is is really difficult because how how many how many different ways can you rule out things? How many doctors can you go to until you are satisfied that something is ruled out that's structural, mechanical? So that's it. That's a nice one that you can do at home too. Yeah, and and uh, just to be thorough. Um, one of the, if something were, uh, spinally maintained, uh, so it's spinal central sensitization, uh, just a, a side note, I personally don't believe in, uh, how, I, I don't agree with current usage of central sensitivity syndrome and, um, uh, sometimes people, you can't diagnose central sensitization, for example, central sensitization is a mechanism that many doctors don't understand. So there's a lot of uh, hype about around those terms that isn't accurate. Um, and it's so just to give your listeners very accurate information. If you were to have spinal cord mediated central sensitization, there are three symptoms to look for. One is that in the affected part of your body, you move, just take your fingertip and brush it lightly across the skin. You're looking for something called dynamic mechanical allodynia. It's something that only occurs with spinal central sensitization and it's pain that occurs with slight moving, like slight move, uh, gentle moving pressure. The other is punctate pressure pain, which is whenever you push, you know, your finger into the skin and it hurts more than it should. So normally you do this and it doesn't hurt, but if you push your finger into the skin and it hurts, then that's a good sign uh, that it's okay. uh, this as well. Another thing is that these all these things have to happen together. So for instance, I could push mm. a tender part of my body um, and feel tenderness, but not have the moving dynamic mechanical allodynia, that would not be spinally maintained central sensitization. It has to be both of those things. And once you pick up the finger, you still feel sensations in that part of the body for seconds, minutes, hours, days. Okay. So those are three things that you can do yourself uh, to, to recognize that mechanism. For the appropriate diagnosis of central sensitization. Because yeah. I think you're right. Central sensitization is definitely thrown around everywhere. And now, um, and now I think in the mind-body community, we're interpreting it to just mean unexplained pain, which therefore means mind-body pain. Um, but you're talking about a structural thing in, in the a spinal column. And, and if you do have that, all it means is that there is peripheral, uh, a, a signal, a sensory signal coming from that body area that needs to be quieted down and soothed. Mm. Interesting. So it, yeah, very so different. It does mean, so it, it's one of my longstanding pet peeves just because, um, uh, like you said, it has been a, 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 there were some very high profile clinicians that, uh, misinterpreted, uh, the, the phenomena. And, uh, unfortunately many people listened to them and the, the hope, the thing is, is that 
how it's treated it's not it can't be treated because people don't understand what it is um central sensitization is something that happens whenever you have a um a, a sunburn it's a very natural thing that happens it's just whenever it continues over a longer period of time that it becomes an issue mm -hmm. and for example some people think that uh, central sensitization is synonymous with fibromyalgia I do not agree with that mm -hmm. Um, okay. There are some studies that show specifically that that's not the case. Okay. In all of these cases, I almost feel like it's it's noise, it's distracting from the real work, which mm -hmm. is how do you feel in your body? What is your body trying to tell you? What patterns can you change? What new habits can you create? What emotions can you work through? Yeah. Uh, because whenever pain lasts for months and years and decades, it's not central sensitization. Okay. Noted. It's good <laughs> to know. Yeah, that's really good. Okay. One last question. We are definitely running late. Okay. Um, my daughter has CRPS and then I'm going to butcher this word myoclonosis. Nope. I even said it wrong. Myo. Clonus, myoclonus is a new symptom that has presented recently. Has Dr. Farmer come across this before? I haven't been able to dig up a lot of information on this symptom in the mind-body community, but I'm thinking it's a neural circuit symptom. If so, are there any specific therapies that would help with slowing down the, uh, and he words, uses the word tics, which I think is like a muscle mm -hmm. spasm type thing. So it's, this is not a common uh, symptom that, comes with CRPS at all, but uh, it makes me wonder, the first thing that I think of whenever I hear this is uh, muscle tremor, which could easily be confused with muscle tics. Um, muscle tremor is something that happens, it's a, it's a, motor pattern that's stored in the nervous system. So you're correct in that it's, it's a phenomenon of the nervous system, but it's um, something that happens whenever there's an area of uh, trauma or energy that's locked in a part of the body. So if you look up, um, for example, um, if you were to do a Google search for emotional trauma tremor, there are even certain types of therapies uh, that go into how to work with these tremors, because the idea is that there are certain patterns, certain amounts of tension and energy that are held in the nervous system that just need to be expressed. Yeah. And that's part of the therapy. So for example, uh, this is on a spectrum of normal as well. For instance, if anyone has ever gone to a yoga class and your muscles start to shake in a really weird way, that's an example of this. We all have this in our bodies to varying extents. And sometimes the body is ready to release that pattern. So my intuition here is that it's, um, it's actually a tremor that the nervous system is discharging, meaning that it's a pattern, it's a symptom of healing. <laughs> I don't think it needs emotional to be healing, correct? Exactly. It does not need to be medicated. And I'm not a medical doctor, but this is, you know, because of, of the uniqueness of, of 
you know, this isn't part of this CRPS symptomology at all. It is part of the chronic pain experience of discharging these patterns from the nervous system. Um, for instance, uh, she may benefit from, and I, in, by saying this, I'm not diminishing the importance of this, but there are a number of things, uh, for instance, stretching and letting the muscles just shake on their own. There's tapping, there's vagus nerve mm -hmm. uh, techniques. So for instance, Stanley Rosen, Rosenberg has an excellent book about healing, the, healing using the vagus nerve. There are very simple ways to, um, to, uh, to, to, to soothe the nervous system through vagus nerve stimulation. Yeah. She might also want to look into trauma-informed yoga online because a lot of those practitioners use these methods. And if you were to talk to any trauma-informed yoga instructor worth their salt and ask them about tremors, they'd know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So this is a known thing. Yeah, and okay. it's in, and I it is not, you know I think it's worthwhile to reframe it as a the nervous system discharging a pattern that's been held in the body. Yeah, trauma held in the body. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, thank you. This has been absolutely lovely. Um, thank you everybody for watching. I hope you enjoyed it. And um, until next time, I'll see you next week. Bye.